Welcome to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Richard A. Kunin, past president of the Orthomolecular Medical Society, and Gladys Block, professor of public health, nutrition, and epidemiology at UC Berkeley, join Linus Pauling, 1954 Nobel laureate in chemistry, in this exploration of the role of vitamins and prevention of disease. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, and don't forget to subscribe to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Well, Richard and Gladys, I'm happy to be able to carry on a conversation with you because there's a, a question that I think is really very important that I'd like to have your opinions about. I believe that there is the possibility that uh, the medical system in the United States and perhaps everywhere can be changed for the better in a, a really remarkable way so that uh, there's better medical care for everybody and at a lower cost. If we make use of vitamin supplements and other nutritional supplements uh, in the right way. After all, the vitamins and uh, essential amino acids and essential fats are all pretty cheap compared with drugs, for example. The, I read about drugs, new drugs that cost $600 per week per patient for the treatment and others even more than that, $1,000 a week for the patient. And I remember that uh, the vitamin C that I take, 18 grams a day, uh, costs me uh, less than a can of Coca-Cola, for example, half as much, in fact, because it only costs uh, two cents a gram. I take 18 grams, 18,000 milligrams a day. That's only 36 cents for vitamin C and about the same amount for the other vitamins and nutrients that I uh, take. So uh, I think there are really great possibilities here. For one thing, uh, why is medical care so expensive? I think it is largely because there are diseases that most people suffer from before death that are debilitating diseases such that uh, the person is not able to work any longer, gets retired for disability, doesn't contribute to the work of the world in the way that he or she had been doing, and uh, the treatment of this debilitating disease is also apt to be very expensive. Uh, surgical treatment, medical treatment, drugs, uh, and uh, care, uh, it's much better, I think, for people to be in good health, not debilitated, uh, finally, after the passage of time, begin to uh, get weak as their bodies wear out, and finally, as many old people do, just to die quietly. This doesn't cause nearly so much uh, grief as when a young person dies. And in particular, if there hasn't been the period of debility. Well, 
course, I am convinced that by proper use of vitamin C, the other vitamins, amino acids, coenzymes, substances normally in the present in the human body, people can be put in much better health so that uh, many of the diseases that cause debility and death would be prevented for a long period of time. People would be able to lead happy lives, and finally there comes the time when they die, but without too great suffering. So uh, I think that we are missing a great opportunity here, that the medical profession, uh, because of a bias that it has, uh, is uh, perhaps for the most part responsible. Nutritionists too, to some extent. Well, you know, the medical profession is trained and to cure illness. And they don't go through medical school to prevent illness. They go through medical school to learn to cure illness. And that's, as you say, has driven our whole medical system, I think, and that's why it's so enormously expensive. This a huge proportion. What proportion is it of the of the uh, healthcare budget that's spent in the last thirty days of life? Uh, I don't know the percentage on it, but it is high. And uh, it, in a recent article in the JAMA, I recall that where cancer treatment was concerned, they broke it down into uh, leukemic or blood hematologic cancers versus solid tumors, and the price of a year of life was somewhere for the for the uh, solid tumors, I think it was $80,000, and for the leukemias, it was 120 something. In fact, then they spelled it out again, and it turned out four times that much. I mean, the figures were complicated enough, I didn't yeah. take it further. Once I got to $100,000, I felt that was yeah. Uh, yeah. sufficient to bankrupt the country. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't really want to have myself see that $480,000 figure that I also recall as it's flashing through my mind. Yeah. You know, I don't. Uh, it's high. I don't criticize uh, physicians who are practicing medicine. Sure. I think they are doing the right things. The policy that a physician does not think about methods of treatment for a patient after the patient has been diagnosed as having a certain disease, then the thing to do is to treat the patient in the way that the whole medical establishment has decided is the right way. That, I think, is a correct policy. Sure. Uh, Professor Addis, Tom Addis at Stanford Medical School, uh, said many years ago that a physician shouldn't think about <laughs> the treatment of his patient. If he thinks, then since the process of ratiocination is not perfect, he may make a mistake, which could be catastrophic for the patient. Yeah. So the thing to do is to treat the patient in the way that the whole body of medical people have decided is the right way. Right. I agree. Right. I don't, uh, simply because the missing link in medical practice today is medical nutrition. And the uh, body medicus, the corpus medicus, is lacking even the wherewithal, uh, ideologically, to look in the right places for answers that make 
a uh, tremendous difference in the outcome, both for prevention and for, uh, I wouldn't say cure, but for remediation, the treatment. Yes. Well, of course, I agree with you on that. I knew you what would. What you were saying is that uh, medical nutrition needs to be brought into the mainstream of medical treatment. Well, in the same book, Glomerular Nephritis, in which Tom Addis made this statement about the desirability that physicians treat their patients in the approved way. He was also trying to get the medical profession to adopt a different way of treating patients with kidney disease, a way that he has developed. So uh, you are saying, I, I would say, you are saying that you don't disagree well, you said you did disagree, but I would say I don't think you disagree with me that physicians should not experiment on their patients. What you're saying is that the medical establishment needs to accept a new point of view about what is proper for the prevention and treatment of disease. Yes. yes. I, I don't like to just, I think it's not productive to take the point of view that they need to do this or they need to do that because they will do what they will do. And so I want to think about what can we do, what data can we provide, or what approaches can we take, or who can we seek to influence that uh, will open their minds to these ideas. I mean, it's no good saying they ought to do this. It's obvious to us, therefore it ought to be obvious to them. Uh, so I don't know. really dispute your position in theory. Uh, in practice, my mind flashes back to Dr. Michael Sporn, who was at one time titled the Chief of Research at the National Cancer Institute. In the 1970s, he made a quote, which was, if I may, probably I'm guessing, paraphrase, but it was something to the point that a single multivitamin is the best health insurance in America today. Uh, at that time, that was a rather daring statement. And I think he was referring particularly to his fascination with the uh, usefulness of vitamin A in cancer prevention, which by now is an agreed upon fact across the board for epithelial tumors affecting the lung, the GI tract, and the uh, genital urinary tract, in particular, as well as skin. But not much has been done about it. In fact, perhaps the first real breakthrough in that direction took an almost uh, scandal to achieve uh, acceptance in the, shall we say, the health establishment, the, uh, the rule-making bodies at the top of the American uh, medical uh, political system, uh, namely folic acid as a preventive for birth defects, coming as it does decades after the initial studies, which were already quite uh, impressive in England, uh, were uh, well known. So what I'm saying is certain kinds of mountain peak, you know, high point data are well known already and well known, in fact, to our, uh, our colleagues in positions of academic and political power. But so far it has, there's been a great resistance to implementing this data. Uh, no, I think there's a real, no, I, I, I disagree. I mean, at least if I understand you, I think that there's still there's a position that one feels like a good scientist if one says the data are not clear yet and we shouldn't take action until the data are incontrovertible. 
And that's why all of this business about clinical trials, uh, you know, has uh, clinical trials have become the sine qua non now for uh, for what constitutes adequate evidence. I, I applaud clinical trials, although I think there are some areas where we can't do clinical trials really realistically. Well, with your statement, this reminds me of the flash of insight that I had around 25 years ago. Good. Tell us about that. And this is the realization, which was quite a surprise to me, that there is a great difference between vitamins and drugs. The drugs are toxic substances. Uh, they may attack the cancer cells, but they damage all of the other cells in the body, too. And uh, the policy, which I think was quite a proper one, was that if a patient is in serious danger of dying from a disease, then you should, and there's a drug that is known to have some effectiveness against a disease, and almost certainly the drug will be more effective the larger the amount is given. Then you give the patient an amount which isn't enough to kill him or her by the toxicity, but comes close to it to, in order to have the best chance of saving the life of the patient. And the insight that struck me suddenly 25 years ago was that vitamins aren't toxic, that uh, there's no known toxicity to vitamin C. People have taken a quarter of a pound a day, day after day for months or years without uh, uh, having any serious side effects, for example. And other vitamins too are essentially free of toxicity. So then I thought, as I kept thinking about the attitude of the nutritional authorities and the medical authorities, I thought, uh, I think I understand what uh, was going on in their heads 50 years ago. Here we have a drug that uh, perhaps uh, helps to control a particular disease. Many of these drugs are quite specific with respect to the diseases that the drug controls. And we know how much of the drug should be given to the patient. You don't want to kill a patient from the toxicity of the drug, so uh, we have found out how much. And uh, this determines what we, the medical authorities, tell physicians all over the country to do. What about vitamin C? Well, vitamin C prevents scurvy, keeps people from dying of scurvy. We know that. We know what its value is. And we know that a little pinch, five or 10 milligrams per day, is enough for most people to keep them from dying of scurvy. And so we'll recommend the RDA, the recommended allowance of vitamin C, dietary allowance, you get it in your foods, as a, an amount that will 
prevent almost every person in ordinary health from developing scurvy. So the idea that very much larger amounts of vitamin C or other vitamins could have great value in preventing other diseases or as an adjunct to appropriate conventional therapy in treating other diseases, I think this idea just didn't occur to them mm -hmm. because at that time there wasn't evidence about drugs. Right. Dr a drug for one disease might also have value for some other diseases. So uh, the result was that for 50 years, the nutritionists and physicians, the leaders in medicine, kept saying the vitamins are very important. You must take the recommended amount to keep from dying of the corresponding deficiency diseases, and larger intakes have no value against any disease. Only recently. Yeah, I never thought of that, so that it's, it's just the opposite philosophy with drugs, where they give basically close to the maximum tolerated dose if it's a drug, but they give toast to the close to the minimum possible effective level if it's a vitamin. A vitamin, that's, that's right, yes. Yeah. And of course, part of the reason is a, a practical one. I remember a member of the committee in England that set the recommended amounts of vitamins, set them at a dose considerably smaller than what he himself thought would do the best good for the people. He said, uh, if we were to recommend the amounts that I think uh, would be uh, of most value to people, uh, this would be a catastrophe because uh, the people in England couldn't get these amounts. It would require a complete revolution in the eating habits of yeah. the British yeah. people. In fact, that brings you back to the concept of uh, preventive medicine and public health. By and large, we don't think as much in practice about preventive medicine and public health in the big way because the big things ostensibly have been done. Sanitation had been set in place. Food inspection had been set in place. By pre-World War II, the food enrichment program and the fortification programs, which were intended to prevent uh, further possibility of uh, deficiency disease, have been set into place in this country, each of these involving a large political, economic, regulatory movement. And your colleague is pointing out that to do the same for optimal doses, rather than merely minimal doses, in fact, that they used to call it the minimum daily allowance as opposed to the recommended daily allowance. And here, the orthomolecular concept is the optimal dose for the needs of the individual vis-a-vis -vis the genetics, the illness at hand, if there is one, and the lifestyle requirements. And in fact, then we get back to people like me who are in the front lines working one-on-one -on -one or in groups uh, teaching people uh, what we know of health maintenance on a personal level. Yes, and well, it's up to us to help them to motivate to take care of themselves individually regarding yes. these orthomolecular doses. Well, 25 years ago, I thought uh, when I had this idea and thought, uh, all I need to do is look in the literature and I'll find out what the optimum mm -hmm. intakes are. But when I looked in the literature, I couldn't find anything about no. the optimum intakes. And uh, 
course, this is the reason that for nearly well, sure. 25 years, I've been spending a lot of my time essentially trying to find out what amounts of these substances people ought to take. Yeah. And this raises a question that I'd like to ask you uh, about, Gladys. During the last uh, five years, say, the nutritional authorities and to some extent, and the medical authorities too, have changed. They have changed from saying uh, high doses of vitamins have no value against the common cold or other diseases to saying uh, we know now that a higher intake of vitamins for example, the three important antioxidants, vitamin C, vitamin E, and beta-carotene, have protective effect against cancer. We have much information about that. And so this information is now included in uh, some of the official statements that are made. And then these authorities go on to say, so we recommend that you search out the foods that are high in these substances and buy and eat those foods, but don't take vitamin supplements. I know. Now, why? I why know. do they say that? Well, on the one, I, I think there's a real justification. I mean, I'm not saying I support it, and I always, when I'm interviewed, say, yes, eat your fruits and vegetables, but, you know, vitamin supplements are probably okay too. Um, I'm moderate, moderate that way because I think that's the only way that we can begin to open up people's minds. Um, so, you know, I say it very modestly because I, that's sort of a, by an approach. Not, but, but, well, by saying things like, I think vitamin supplements are okay, as opposed to saying, I think everybody ought to take 10 grams. Uh, because I don't think, you know, you have to do these in stages little by little. I don't think anybody is ready to hear uh, you ought to take large doses, but at any rate, that was a that was sort of a side, an aside. Um, well, you are a real authority on the value of uh, foods that are rich in certain vitamins, as uh, for their prophylactic effect, especially. Right, right. And so I was going to say that to give them their due, the studies show that foods supplying. Until about now, really, all the studies have said it's foods that supply high levels of X, Y, and Z that are protective. So people who eat a lot of fruits and vegetables do, uh, without question in my mind, have a lower risk of cancer. But then people will say, well, you know, you don't know for sure that it's the vitamin C because a lot of things come along in foods. You don't know for sure that it's the beta carotene because there are hundreds of carotenoids, carotenoids in foods. So there's some merit to what they're saying, I think, that we can't tell for sure. I happen to be completely convinced, but, um, you know, you can't yes. tell for sure that it's the vitamin C that's doing it. And the reason I I think that's a valid argument is because a lot of people are hot on beta carotene and they say beta carotene is what prevents this, that, and the other thing. Well, what I believe is that beta carotene is mainly a marker for vitamin C, frankly. And so if I can make that argument about beta carotene, I've got to give them the right to make that argument about vitamin C. Sure. You know? Yes, well, in a sense, well, I can't say that I agree 
there's one point that I want to mention. You mentioned 10 grams of vitamin C, which I recommend, mm -hmm. say, at least for some people. Mm -hmm. uh, the, I think that an ordinary vitamin mineral supplement containing just the RDAs improves the health of people a great deal. I do too. I absolutely <laughs> agree. So that means taking an extra RDA. But then I would go on to say, if you take 10 times that amount, you get an additional improvement, an additional protective effect. Or if you take 50 times that amount, three grams a day, 3,000 milligrams a day of vitamin C, you get still more uh, value. And if you go to 100 or 200 or 300 times, this is not for every nutrient. I'm just talking about vitamin yeah, C. It's an important then you point. get some additional effect. Well, now, uh, can we recommend that uh, every person in the United States take 10 grams of vitamin C a day? I well, what's your opinion about that? Okay, do well, you actually recommend that everybody take 10 grams of vitamin C a day? Well, what I recommend is that every adult person, every adult, take uh, three grams of vitamin C per day or more. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and That's sort of where I am, I say actually. three to 18 grams per day mm -hmm. uh, of vitamin C and take also good amounts of certain other vitamins and other nutrients. So uh, there's also a practical problem. I'm not sure about the, the production of vitamin C if everyone suddenly were to mm -hmm. take 10 grams a day. Well, the same goes for fruits and vegetables, you know. Well, it's a comfort to see that uh, Enstrom, in his uh, epidemiologic study, which you're both familiar with, found a six-year bonus in longevity in a population that averaged an uh, extra, uh, roughly, I think it was 380 milligrams. So that uh, uh, while you may have additional benefits, the, the research that hasn't been done is exactly what you're calling for and have been calling for since the very first, which is a search for optimal dose uh, and perhaps a cost-benefit kind of an analysis. Where do you have the benefits here versus cost there? And then applying this across the large population with some people who may have adverse responses, the most common, of course, being an unpleasant bowel reaction to larger doses of vitamin C. I've seen it myself and some of my patients at doses as low as two grams a day. Yes. So it, it's not something that you will be popular with everyone uh, at yes. the doses that you're thinking of. Well, you don't. So you, you got to use common sense as you should with anything. You know, if it gives you loose bowels, don't take as much. It seems pretty well simple said. to me. But there we are. We're doing two things that are really unprecedented in world history. One in world medical history in particular. We're pointing out to ourselves and to others that for the first time in history, we actually know enough about applied biochemistry uh, to uh, be able to pr provide for people a better deal. That they're actually, through something as simple as taking a pill, maybe even a single pill, able to extend life and health and well-being considerably at a low, at a low cost and at almost zero uh, adverse risk. That's rather profound. But even that requires salesmanship <laughs> because uh, sure, people sure. need to be able to, there are people that won't take that pill. And then the question because is there another way to deliver vitamin C? Is it ethical or right in view of our afterthoughts, for example, on uh, putting iron into food? 
right? That was supposed to be a, the thing to do back in the 1930s and 40s. We look at it now 50 years later and realize we're overloading some people through a lifetime of iron supplementation, causing adverse results probably. Maybe. Could, <laughs> could we change our minds about vitamin C after all? That's right. all I'm saying yeah. here. And uh, so on the public health question, there are uh, ifs, ands, and buts. It's very reassuring to see Rajit Chandra with a beautiful study showing a vitamin C intake of 80 milligrams, but in the context of a low-dose multivitamin that also included about 1,500 units of vitamin A and other uh, uh, supportive nutrients, a multivitamin lacking only manganese, as far as I can see. Yeah. And he showed right there a 50% reduction in infectious disease across the board in uh, people over age 65, average age of 74. Remarkable study because it yeah. did exactly what, it took that lower level and showed even a little bit of a supplement, but now not just single vitamin, exactly. uh, combined food yeah. factors provided a major bonus in well-being and health and resistance. I think that's, that's really important to say because uh, unfortunately and unjustifiably, I think Dr. Pauling's name has gotten associated with one vitamin, but it's clearly not one vitamin that's the only thing that's important, and, and it's important, I think. And this study is one of a number of studies now coming out that suggest a multivitamin uh, that has a lot of other vitamins in it actually has benefit, health benefits. And nature packaged all these things together, and we shouldn't forget that. You know, they interact with each other. Vitamin C in, improves the way vitamin E works and so on. You know, they interact with each other. So I think it's important for people to realize that there is an array of vitamins and that basically our whole nutritional status needs to be improved. But the skeptics and the resistance among the conventional orthodox, DOCS, the orthodox, will say that um, people are getting their combined nutrients in food. Why right. do they need these uh, the extra expense and inconvenience of pills. Right. What and do we I, tell them? I, well, what we tell them is what I, the research that I've looked at in the national, in national surveys. Uh, yeah, I teach a course called Undernutrition in the United States because I'm so tired of hearing that our problem is overnutrition and that everybody, you know, we seem to get enough already and it's okay. No, indeed. Uh, there are large segments of the population that don't even get the RDA. And the three of us, at any rate, agree that at least for most nutrients, the RDA is probably not optimal. Do you think doctors believe that? Well, doctors, as you were talking about, the six or seven hundred thousand practicing physicians in America, see, that's they what I. That? They may not believe it, but that's not. But they, but they could be persuaded with data. You know, that's why I think we ought to show them the data over and over again. That look, people really actually don't get all of these nutrients in diet that you think they're getting in diet. Uh, we did a, a study in which we looked at how many people ate their fruits and vegetables in, in a, a survey of 12,000 people in the United States, big representative survey. And the National Cancer Institute recommends five servings of fruits and vegetables a day. 9% of the population on any given get day gets nine, five servings of fruits and vegetables a day. So it's you know, 9% of us. <laughs> well, on those five servings, they would get the 300 to 400 milligrams or more of vitamin C. That's which right. Would get, at least give them That's the right. uh, Enstrom bonus. Right. I was very pleased with the response that Jim Enstrom's paper got last yes. year when it was published, because usually the uh, establishment has tried to downgrade any reports of this sort. Mm -hmm. Well, that was such an excellent epidemiological paper 
that mm -hmm. uh, there was very little negative response. After all, there were the 11,348 subjects and followed for 10 years and with an analysis of factors that might interfere with mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. investigation or perhaps a, a decrease the probability that right. the conclusions could be accepted. And as, as you say, it involved something like 350 milligrams of vitamin C a day, uh, six times the RDA, not large amounts on, from my point of view. And that was the first study that showed definitely that in addition to eating a good diet, taking vi extra vitamin C uh, helped to extend the period of well-being. Well, it was mortality, the length of life, in this case, by about six years, mainly uh, because of the decrease in the mortality from cardiovascular disease, uh, but to a somewhat smaller extent, the decrease from uh, mortality from uh, cancer and diabetes and other diseases. So it's very encouraging that uh, there were only, I think, two uh, groups that got out health letters to university departments of nutrition that came out with uh, uh, derogatory statements trying to convince people that you shouldn't believe that the results that uh, instrument is the yeah. source it's got. Because of that kind of resistance, however, in actual clinical practice, uh, where uh, you might say, uh, I call it uh, putting nutrition first as a strategy for medical practice. The first step is to measure nutrients uh, in a practical way. This can be done rather inexpensively now using a panel testing for vitamins and a, a second lab that does a panel testing for minerals, whether it's in uh, red blood cells or in leukocytes or in urine. So it requires actually more than one channel to be reasonably sure of uh, the uh, interpretation as it happens. But nevertheless, the measuring of nutrients is helpful because it is accurate and it is available and it is relatively inexpensive. And when you find something wrong, you can fix it. I think that's, that's extremely important if, because doctors, doctors believe in blood tests, you know, yes. <laughs> they don't believe in this um, sort of lightweight, unimportant dietary stuff, but they believe in blood tests. And I think if we could only persuade doctors just to measure, just to measure plasma levels of vitamin C and plasma levels of vitamin E, I think that would be the beginning of a revolution because they would see that their patients who come in with chronic diseases have lower levels, they, that they could bring the, the levels up and they would see benefits. I, I really feel if we could just, just get doctors to measure, they would uh, start opening up. Agreed. But uh, as it happens now, measuring the nutrients is a good opening gambit in medical practice, coming after the history, right? then measurement, documentation. But in the present political climate, in the political economic climate of medicine, uh, 
This can be considered excessive prescribing of laboratory services, unnecessary service, an expense that could be charged back to the doctor even. Right this very moment, there's a doctor colleague that Dr. Pauling knows of in New York, who uh, Dr. Levin, who has found uh, has been found against by the New York Medical Board on this very type of practice. Uh, so that there is considerable, shall we say politely, controversy on this subject. Sure. And this kind of controversy yeah. scares doctors, naturally, mm -hmm. who then hold back and wait for someone else to say it's okay. Right. Or yeah. then not only okay, but maybe even required yeah. to be the standard of care for good medicine. Right. Let's take vitamin A, for example. It's very well documented by double-blind studies. It was 1979, Dr. Ben Cohen, surgical gynecology and obstetrics. He did a, a pre-surgical uh, megadose for a week, vitamin A supplementation. Uh, 300 to 450,000 units of vitamin A. And with a comparison group on placebo, the comparison group postoperatively had a 40% drop in the lymphocyte counts. The vitamin A group, which by the way was considered normal, the vitamin A group had a 50% increase in the lymphocyte counts. I think now this data has not been utilized, as far as I know, at all. People are still talking. I don't mean to not appreciate vitamin C, but here again we have a double-blind right. study right. and a vitamin that is critical for wound healing, for resistance to infection, well known for its anti-cancer preventive mm -hmm. and even restorative effects. And it's the uh, not only at the stepchild that's kind of the black sheep of the vitamin family because all you hear about vitamin A is how bad it is for you, mm -hmm. as if there was some epidemic. A vitamin A toxicity. No, but I do isn't. think it's important in this conversation for us to make sure that it's understood that, uh, that vitamin A is one of the relatively few vitamins for which there can be toxicity. And therefore, so, it should be measured. Right. Because it's also the premier therapeutic agent okay. as your first line, not your second or third line, not nutrition last, nutrition right. first, right. orthomolecular first. Yeah. Dr. Pauling, um, way back, when, when did you first get interested in vitamin C, and how did that happen? The, well, I became interested in vitamins to some extent in the 1930s, because I brought to Pasadena as a member of our chemistry department the man who had determined the structure of vitamin B1. I mean, and the method of synthesizing it. Uh, and uh, so that was the first vitamin that I took an interest in. Then in 1941, when I was ill, Dr. Addis, Tom Addis at Stanford Medical School, treated me in an orthomolecular way. I didn't get any drugs, but I, he did have me take vitamins. And essentially the RDA. So from 1941 on, I took every day a pretty standard vitamin mineral pill. In 1966, Erwin Stone, a biochemist who had devoted much of his life to checking up on vitamin C and who then wrote a book uh, the healing factor of vitamin C against disease, wrote a letter to me sending some of his papers in which he argued that every person is deficient in vitamin C. 
because of the bad accident that interferes with the ability of human beings to synthesize it. And he said, evidence from animals that make vitamin C suggests that perhaps 10 grams a day, 10,000 milligrams a day is the amount that people ought to be getting rather than 60 milligrams a day. And he recommended that I start taking three grams a day to see if it uh, helped me uh, to control a common cold, which I suffered from quite a lot, and perhaps other diseases. So uh, I, that was all right. Uh, I, I, wasn't, I still wasn't very interested in vitamins. Then I read the work of Hoffer and Osmond, and I met uh, those two psychiatrists who were giving very large amounts of vitamins to schizophrenic patients, just as uh, Dr. Cunyon has been too. Uh, and that was when I had this burst of insight that vitamins are really astonishing substances because of how little toxicity they have. And the question immediately came up in my mind, how much of these of vitamin C, for example, should I take to be in the best of health? I still, well, I thought about uh, why is it that megavitamins have value yeah, what's in the, the control of schizophrenia? And I published my first paper in this field in 1968. It was called orthomolecular psychiatry. It was also the paper in which the word orthomolecular was introduced. There, I presented a number of arguments about mechanisms that go on in the human body and that involve vitamins. And why it is that uh, even animals that manufacture their own vitamin C are benefited if you give them extra vitamin C. Uh, that may have been a new argument, but I had, uh, you know, I have a background of knowledge of chemistry, not so much biochemistry, but chemistry as a whole. And I like to understand things. I like to understand what's going on in systems. Recently, Dr. Hoffer said, my contribution Dr. Linus Pauling's contribution has been not that he discovered megavitamin therapy of schizophrenia or uh, of cancer or anything else, but that he presented us with an understanding of why uh, it uh, works. Yeah. And I think also your your contribution to me as one who has lived through this orthomolecular movement pretty well from the day that I saw that paper on orthomolecular psychiatry and took comfort from it as I was making the transition into a biomedical or biochemical model in my then psychiatric practice, since it's become more of a medical practice, as you know, I realized that what you had given us was A, the courage to make a paradigm shift 
uh, away from the toxi-molecular, as Bernie Rimland calls it, and into the orthomolecular conception uh, of not just disease, but health and disease in relation, using biochemistry as a structure of understanding. If, if a bit hazy now, at least a way to go. And that along with that, in relation to vitamins, it was clear right from the very outset of your pioneering work with vitamin C in the common cold, you were reanalyzing data that was already there and calling for studies that would identify optimum doses. This well, is yet to be done, but it's exactly what you did with electronegativity, where in your basic chemistry days, you laid out the electronegativity for all of the elements. It was just here you are. All well, the vitamins right. require the same poetic justice. When I was 30 years old, I uh, introduced what might be called a new paradigm in chemistry. Yes. And uh, uh, of course, I also was criticized. Uh, <laughs> the Soviet Union, the scientists in the Soviet Union uh, had a big meeting at which they passed a resolution saying that no patriotic Soviet scientists would use my ideas because they were incompatible with dialectical materialism. <laughs> and my wife made a comment, I think, essentially on the vitamin C business, but referring also to earlier work that I had done, that my trouble was that I was stubborn, <laughs> that I wouldn't give up. If I had decided that something was right, I wouldn't allow pressure to caused me to deviate from my course. And the arguments about the value of vitamins seem to me to be so compelling that we just have to accept them. Well, you're obviously the living example of that. You know? um, it's, are you now 92 or 93? Six. Well. I'm in my 93rd year. My 92nd birthday was six days ago. Yes. Uh -huh. and, it's, and it's not just living long. It's living well, living actively, you know? That's, that's what I think you're such a wonderful example of. That I mean, here you are, a practicing scientist, writing. You're more productive than, than the two of us put yes. together, surely, uh, in your 93rd year. And that's what we all want out of life, is to live well, to live yes. actively and, and well. And um, Well, right about. now, I'm hard at work on uh, making the uh, biostatistical analysis of uh, mortality data for cancer patients, 304 cancer patients. And uh, these are patients that Dr. Hoffer has oh, yes. had under his mm -hmm. care. Mm -hmm. the, reached a total of 304 two years ago when we uh, decided to stop that phase of the study and uh, uh, follow those patients. There are others being registered now. but mm -hmm. these. And the interesting thing that the first study of, uh, of Hoffer's group gave was that Hoffer's treatment is quite clearly better than Cameron's. Cameron gave 10 grams of vitamin C per day to his patients, terminal cancer patients in Scotland. 
called untreatable because there was nothing the physicians knew that could uh, that had any hope of controlling the disease, and they responded in a remarkable way, living some years rather than just months after reaching the untreatable stage. Uh, Hoffer gave 10 grams, or the average was 12 grams, a little more of vitamin C to his patients. But he also gave them 800 units of vitamin E, 1,500 milligrams of niacin per day, and 25 or 50 times the RDA of other B vitamins, and beta-carotene, and selenium. So, Hoffer's patients are living twice as long after reaching, after being registered in this study, than Cameron's patients. That is, the other nutrients double the effect that vitamin C alone had, as shown by Cameron's studies. Well, you know, a skeptic can say, but Cameron was working in a hospital in Scotland and Hoffers in a hospital in British Columbia. Things are so much different, you can't attribute it to the other vitamins that Hoffer. But I can if I want to. <laughs> That's right. But, That's right. Uh, I was just reading an article about the principle of parsimony. Uh, when I formulated my rules about the structure of the silicate minerals and other complex uh, crystals. In 1929, I put in the rule of parsimony, that when you are trying to find the structure, uh, concentrate on the simpler ones, not the more complicated mm -hmm. ones. And uh, there was an article in Science about the rule of parsimony that didn't mention what I had done. So here, Obviously, the simplest explanation of the difference between Hoffer's patients and Cameron's patients is that they get these other nutrients as well as the vitamin C. Yes. There may well be some other factor yes. involved, but uh, that's the simplest one. Yeah. There, gee, there are so many great things that we're just beginning to get into, and I wish we uh, had time to have four more of these conversations, mm -hmm. Dr. Pauling and, and Richard. This is, uh, Thank you, uh, is I, think, um, we, I think we really are at the beginning of a revolution in the appreciation of, uh, of the role of vitamins. And, you know, you've played a role and Linus has played a role. And um, I hope we can have some more conversations like this about... Uh, that would be fine. Want more episodes like this? Don't forget to subscribe and get updates each week for the Free to Choose Media Podcast.